I don't know what you know about trees. I will admit to you, I don't know a lot about trees. Somebody asked me, it was probably Deborah while we were driving, uh, if that was a, a certain type of tree. I said, I don't know. <laughs> I had the foggiest idea. I will readily admit, I, I am not an expert about trees and plants, and I'm the same way with flowers. You know, is that a such and such of a flower? I don't know. You tell me, right? But I'm also not a complete idiot, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> and there are certain trees, certain plants, where I'm pretty confident about what they are. We have a tree in our yard. It's, it's uh, in our backyard, and it's right next to a, a deck that's on the, the second level. And, and, and so it's right next to this that is a pear tree. Do I know that it's a pear tree because I'm an expert botanist and I know what the leaves on a pear tree look like and I, I know what the bark on a pear tree looks like? No. How do I know it's a pear tree? Yeah, <laughs> there are pears on it. I mean, at a certain time of year in the spring, it will start to develop these flowers and then those flowers invariably grow into first little bitty and then later bigger well, not this big. <laughs> Boy, I just made you think I got these monster pears. Um, but larger pears. So I'm pretty confident that's a pear tree. You know, Scripture says a tree is known by its fruit. And if a tree doesn't have fruit on it, I'm going to shrug my shoulders and say, well, I don't know. But every now and then, uh, I'm pretty sure about what this tree is. I can identify this tree because of the fruit that's on it. You might keep that in mind as you turn in your Bibles back to Colossians today. We've just started together a study of the letter of Colossians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians, members of the body of Christ, members of a church, very much like ours, but it was in a city called Colossae. Uh, it was in a city uh, maybe not exactly like ours, but one thing I like to remind us, and we did this last week too, that we are members of the body of Christ just like them. And Scripture tells us that all of this is useful for us. It's profitable for us. And this is good, and especially because this section of letters, this portion of the New Testament, was written to the body of Christ of which we are also members. And so while we can get value from all of Scripture, the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for us, we also have this lens at times where we recognize there are certain parts of Scripture that perhaps weren't written to us in the same way that they were written to the nation of Israel, for instance. It's why we don't preach that you have to be careful about eating certain types of meat, you know, that was to a, a different group of people. It's not to it. But this was squarely written to the body of Christ. And so this is really important for us. And so as we continue to get into this letter, we only did two verses last week. We're going to do a bunch more today. Sound good? All right. Verse 3 starts this, this section. We always thank God. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Just to give you a little bit of background. I told you some about letter writing back then, um, last week, uh, which is that they started the letter with who it was from, 
and then who the letter was to, and then some, some classic greetings. And then this next section, starting in verse 3, was also very common for letters of the day. There was this, there was this little bit of thanksgiving. It, it wasn't maybe always in every single letter, but it was very, very common, not just for the biblical, the, the Christian community, but for everyone, even across the secular community. I would suggest, though, that this is, just like last week, we looked at what, what is just sort of a standard introduction to a letter, and yet Paul takes that and he turns it into theology, you know. It is a little bit different. And he does the same thing here. What you would more typically see in a secular letter of the day is kind of a generic statement that would be something like, boy, I really thank the gods for you. You notice, you know, first of all, it would be the gods, you know, all of them, right? Small g gods. It would be like, I really thank the gods for you, though. But it was one of those just niceties that was just sort of in a letter. You know, the same way that you might tell somebody, boy, it's been really nice catching up with you, even if it wasn't. <laughs> Not that you've ever been there, right? But you know what I mean? I mean, there are certain things that maybe we say is just sort of niceties. And sometimes in secular letters of the time, this, this element of thanksgiving, while it was really common, it was often there, it was that same sort of way where it was just something that people said uh, without necessarily meaning it. And here again, I think you're going to see Paul really means this as it turns out. I mean, this becomes a lot more important to Paul. This isn't just something that he tax on as a nicety, as an element of politeness that just goes into a letter. And so while some have suggested, well, he's just sort of copying the letter writing form of the day. Well, maybe a little bit, but again, he really elevates it. He really makes it something different. So let's read through this and then we'll kind of circle back and, and unpack it a bit, take it apart. Verse 3 again, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We're going to stop there today. I know some of you, it's going to really bother you because your break in your text comes a little bit later. It's okay. It's all right. We'll get around it. 
<laughs> uh, and, and I'll just be honest with you. As I, uh, somebody told me years ago, you shouldn't say, let me just be honest with you. It implies that there are other times where you're, you're lying to people. That's, I mean, I'm <laughs> never dishonest with you, but, um, you know, I, I went back and forth. You know, sometimes when I get into this and I'm outlining a passage, I, I go back and forth a number of times as a, where, where are we going to break this? Where are we going to, but, but I've landed here for a reason that, that we will get to. But it's a big, heavy, dense chunk. Um, Paul talks about the fact that that he doesn't just say in a sort of a generic sense, oh, you know, we're really thankful for you. He first of all expresses the fact that he prays for these people frequently. You catch that? I mean, right away he says, when we pray for you. Or some of your translations say, whenever we pray for you. I mean, this is something that happens, but he says, when we pray for you, when we do this, we give thanks which is why this whole section is titled, and, and, and keep in mind, this isn't Scripture per se, but, but the editors of, of our Bibles have sometimes added these English headings. And it might say Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving and prayer. That's appropriate because it's all about being really thankful for them. Paul starts out right away wanting to encourage the believers at Colossae. Now, we said before, we said last week, that there are perhaps some issues. And there's been some debate about this. You know, you open up uh, an introduction to this text or a commentary on this text, and, and usually in the opening sections, there will be this whole debate about what was the Colossian heresy? Or was there a Colossian heresy? And, and part of the, the, the debate comes from the fact that in some other books, it's really, really obvious. Galatians is a great example. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul, very early on in that letter, says, I am astounded, I'm shocked, I cannot believe how far you have strayed from the truth. We need to address this right now. Well, in Colossians, we don't seem to have quite those alarm bells and red flags waving. You know, it's a little bit different. But I suggested last week, and I will suggest again this week, I do think that there are some issues. They may be a little bit further out. They may not have really pulled the church in Colossae down into where it was really dangerous quite yet. But there's something going on here. We're going to see that later on. We're absolutely going to see that. One of the things that happens is Paul uses these turns of phrase, and we'll point them out again when we get to them, but Paul uses these turns of phrase that don't seem particularly Pauline. What they seem like are things that he is quoting that are popular sayings that other people have said, and, and, and he's trying to refute those things. Why would he do that unless it was something that they were dealing with, Right? So there are some issues. It's possible that there are issues even with Epaphras. Not issues with Epaphras himself. But I, I told you last week that sometimes when Paul makes a real point to, to claim his apostleship for himself, that it comes from a place of that church or somebody in that church or its locality trying to call Paul's reputation into question. 
Well, that doesn't seem to be the case necessarily here. In fact, we said Paul hasn't met these people. I mean, he, he, we understand that he himself hasn't been to Colossae. But there are a lot of scholars who believe, and this is doing a little bit of reading between the lines, but they believe that Epaphras' reputation had maybe been called into question. Because Epaphras at this time had been gone from Colossae for some time. Partly because he spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment. So he'd been gone for a while and maybe some people had snuck in saying, hey, can you really trust that Epaphras guy? But we see here this first reference to the fact that what these people have put their trust in, what these people have put their faith in, was brought to them, was, was taught to them, was preached to them by Epaphras. And Paul wants to talk about that, and he starts out with this very encouraging tone that we're really thankful for you. And he really praises them. I mean, look at this, verse 4. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and we've heard of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, he says their reputation is a good one. It's a solid one. He's excited about that. He is so thankful for them in part because of this reputation that he's heard about. And he says, you, you've heard this before in the word of truth. This has come to you as indeed the, in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing. He's going to talk a couple of times about this idea of fruit bearing, right? You will know a tree by its fruit. And he starts out being very encouraging. And so I don't think that this is a church that is in dire straits necessarily. I don't think this is a church that is, that is quite walked away from the truth. And yet as we continue to study this together, we are going to come to places where we see, okay, there are some things where they're at least in danger of walking away from the truth. But I love that to start with, he says, let me just talk about the good. Let me tell you why I'm so thankful for you. Let, let me tell you why when I pray for you, I just thank God for what's going on in Colossae. I've said before, I, I feel like it's such a shame that the Apostle Paul is sometimes given this reputation as a very cold individual a very left-brained individual that doesn't really like people all that much. He's kind of bossy and he's kind of arrogant. I, <laughs> I, when we think that, we're not reading Paul closely enough. And again, I, I understand that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, I, I want to continue to circle back to that. These are God's words. These are words from Jesus Christ himself given to Paul. And yet, the, 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 the Holy Spirit allows these biblical writers to sort of show their own personalities and their own bent. I mean, you can tell a difference from Paul's writing between, say, Peter's writing or John's writing. You know, they're different and their own personalities shine through. And here you see Paul with this really tender shepherd's heart. I pray for you people. You know that? And when I do... I'm so thankful because I've been hearing. I, I've heard of, uh, of your reputation. 
I've heard of these fruits that are coming out. These things that you're known for. And the reality is that all across the world, it's the same fruit. I mean, I I have a pear tree in my backyard. If you plant the same type of pear tree in another part of the city or in another part of the country, by and large, it's going to be the same. That's what he's saying. All across the world, this fruit is the same fruit. And I'm thankful for that. But there's something else going on here. And this is where, boy, I'm going to really get myself in trouble. Because I, I sort of want to say all of the things. You know, there's so much here that I just really want to zero in and, and talk about. I want to talk about this, this idea. I mean, I already have. But I really want to focus and zero in on, on this, this heart that the Apostle Paul has for praying for other believers, for being thankful for them. I want to zero in on, on the fruits in particular and some of these things that Paul highlights like he does in verse 4. He highlights their faith in Christ Jesus, the love that they have for all the saints and the hope that they have in Christ Jesus. I, you know, for a time, I really wanted to zero in on the fact that if you look at that, those first three things that he mentions, the, the faith and the love, that those things sort of flow out of the hope. That they have this hope in Jesus Christ, they have this hope in heaven, and out of that flows then this faith and this love. I mean, there are so many things here. But I think part of what's here And part of the reason I'm stopping in verse 12 is because this body of text um, creates sort of a a literary structure. It's called a chiasmus. There's a 50-cent word for you this morning. Do you all use the word chiasmus in your talking a lot? Probably not. (laughs) Chiasmus or a chiastic structure. And we see this here. And and I'm going to teach you. And once you see it, You may notice it a lot more in scriptural writing because there's a bunch of it throughout scripture and certainly within Paul's writings. Um, Chiasmus comes from uh, the the first three letters are C-H-I. And it it bugs me to no end because it comes from the Greek letter key, which you pronounce key. But why do we say chiasmus instead of chiasmus? I don't know. Bugs me a little. (laughs) But the Greek letter key is basically an X. And there's a reason for that, because in a a, a chiasmus, what you see are three thoughts, three, uh, not always three, uh, pardon me, but but a number of thoughts. In today's text, we see sort of three main thoughts. You see an A, a B, and a C, just like that. And then you see them restated, but in reverse order. So then you see a C prime, and a B prime, and an A prime. Do you sort of see the way that I've put that up there, why they refer to it as a chiasmus, why it's named after the Greek letter key, which looks like an X? You see it? It's a half of an X. You get it? Oh, isn't that clever? And this whole section forms this this chiasmus. And I think it's important to note that when the Apostle Paul employs this sort of a literary structure, he does it for a reason. He doesn't just do it 
to be cute and to be poetic and to do it so some literary teacher hundreds of years later will say, oh boy, do you see how clever Paul is? He typically does it to really drive home a point. These sorts of structures were used to, to help people remember things, to really reinforce ideas and topics. And you see this not just in biblical writing, but in secular writing too. Shakespeare, in particular, is known for using this sort of structure a lot. But here, the Apostle Paul employs this. How does he do this? Well, the first idea, the first topic is all about thankfulness, is all about thanksgiving, an A and A prime. We see it right away in verse 3. He says, whenever I pray for you, I give thanks to God. And then at the very end, in verse 12, he's, and, and here he talks about them giving thanks. Now, this is an important element of a chiasmus. That it, it, it not only doesn't always, it almost never uses the same words. It's the same idea, but expressed differently and expressed in different words. But he lands on this idea of thankfulness, and he calls the Colossians in particular to being thankful. You see that? So right away, he starts with the idea of thanksgiving. And at the end of this, he ends with the idea of thanksgiving. But then he talks about these characteristics, these qualities. He has two different triads of characteristics. In verses 4 and 5, we just read them again. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, that's number one. Of the love that you have for all the saints, that's number two. And then he says that these flow out of, but he, but he mentions the hope that you have laid up for you in heaven. Down in verse 11, he talks about a, a triad of three different things. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, number one. For patience, number two. And with joy, number three. You see how that is? And so the, the B and the B prime are the Apostle Paul calling out the reasons for which he is thankful and in that second half, the thankfulness that they ought to have because of these things, the endurance, patience, and joy that they have, that, that that will drive them to thankfulness themselves, just as he has been driven to thankfulness by knowing about their faith and their love and their hope. Right? And then this third theme is he highlights that these things are the fruit of the gospel. They're the fruit of this tree. Let's look at it again. Verse 5, and there's some overlap. You see verse 5 is highlighted as, as part of B as well. But the end of verse 5, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And then later on, in verse 9, starting here. And so, from the day we heard, 
we have not ceased to pray for you. And again, it's slightly different in its wording, but the theme is still there. In the first, he has said, you have this fruit because it's the fruit of the gospel. But in the second section, he says, and now what we're doing is we're praying for more fruit. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, there's the term again, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. That's such a mouthful. But do you see the the structure there? Do you see the the three kind of broad themes and then those same themes repeated in reverse order? Chiasmus. Aren't you glad you know what chiasmus is? (laughs) Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But again, I think the important part of this is not that you understand what a chiasmus means, but what's important is when you see it, It's typically because Paul is really trying to drive home a point. Or all of the scriptural writers. You see a lot of this in Hebrew writing too. And sometimes in Hebrew writing, it's more in poetic form. But you see this form used a lot. It's a powerful form. It's the reason Shakespeare used it a ton too. It's forceful. It does something. It helps reinforce these points that are being made. But there's something else that is often in a chiasmus. And that's a point D that is stated once in the middle of the whole thing. It becomes sort of a fulcrum. It becomes sort of a a hinge point on which everything else rides and hinges and rests. And that tends to be the center of and and perhaps the real crux of the whole matter and what's really important here. And I think it's important that we zero in on that because as it turns out, when one of the biblical writers like the Apostle Paul employs this literary form, it is to really drive home a point. And that point D is that this all stems from the truth that was learned from Epaphras. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. See what Paul does? Is he says, this, all of this, stems from a truth. Now, partly what he, this is somewhat speculative, but part of what he seems to be doing is bolstering up the reputation of Epaphras. We don't necessarily have clear, clear indication that the reputation of Epaphras has, has come under attack. But there's at least kind of a hint of it there. There's, there's at least this, this hint that maybe Epaphras in his absence and he's been gone and a lot of that time he's been with Paul, ministering to Paul 
and assisting Paul. But then in his absence, maybe people have started to forget or question his character, his personality. And Paul makes no bones. Oh, no. Epaphras is, is a brother. Epaphras, when he, when he brought the gospel to you, just as the Apostle Paul we looked at last week, as he says, I didn't make this up. I also didn't get this from any man. You know who I got it from? The Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says, Epaphras also didn't make this up. Epaphras has sort of my stamp of approval. And as we looked last week, as he has forcefully started out by, by reminding them of his apostleship, of indeed his authority, we don't always you know, love talking about authority and especially our submission to it, but, but Paul just says, look, this is, I'm going to stake this claim right now that I come to you as an apostle. But then he goes on to say, but Epaphras came to you with the gospel that came from me, which came from Jesus Christ. This is your brother. Epaphras is someone who is trustworthy. He refers to him as our beloved fellow servant. And Paul has a love for him, and he wants to communicate this, this sense that he has of Epaphras. But over and above that, I think what's important here is that Paul wants to communicate that what Epaphras brought to them initially was truth. That this was truth. And this whole passage hinges on this point. And I think what's interesting, and I told you last week, I said there's some debate about whether there was a heresy or any sort of theological issues in Colossae that needed to be addressed. I am in the camp that, yes, there were. I think it's part of the reason the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. And I suggested to you last week that part of why I think this is important for us to study is because I think we are also dealing with some very similar issues by which the truth is under attack. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't start out by saying, okay, here's what you've gotten wrong, and here's what you've gotten wrong, and here's what you've gotten wrong. What he does is remind them of the truth. He reminds them of this initial contact they had with Epaphras coming from the city of Ephesus. We put the map up last week. I don't have a map for you this week, but we put the map up last week so that you can see Ephesus and then all of its environs including this city of Colossae. And it seems like Paul establishes a, a, a hub there of ministry in Ephesus. And then from there, he sends out people like Epaphras and says, okay, go down the road and take this truth, take this gospel to these other cities, like Colossae, like Laodicea. Take it there. And that this ministry in Ephesus that part of its strength was it wasn't just in Ephesus. I mean, it spread. And he reminds them, there was this day when this guy entered your city, your maybe somewhat hurting city, your city that has fallen on economic hard times, 
that's sort of living in the shadow of Laodicea, you know. But nonetheless, he came to your city and he brought you this truth. And you put your faith in this truth. And I want to remind you, that has had effects. That this truth has fruit. And that your lives are now demonstrating that fruit. And we continue to pray that you'll demonstrate more of it. And all of this ought to drive you, and all of this certainly drives me and us, my fellow servants, to thanksgiving. Do you see the the structure there? But do you see how critical it is that before getting into, here's where you may have some issues, and here's some things I want to correct. He simply reminds them of the truth of the gospel. And I think for you and I, we need to be, to, to, to continue to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. Because what we see in the early church is it was very easy for them to try to modify that truth, to try to tweak it. Sometimes they, they did that by removing things. One of the things that, that we're going to see in this letter later on, I, I don't want to steal our own thunder, you know, but, but we're going to get to one of the things that they have maybe tried to remove is the, the largeness of, the bigness of who Jesus Christ is. Primarily his deity, that he is God in all of God's fullness. That that in the early church got sort of tr- taken away by some people. They tried to strip that away. It's not healthy. If I went to my pear tree and took all the pears off it and then said, see, it's, it's not really a, a pear tree, you know, tried to make it something different, I mean, that would be silly. There's this truth of the gospel. Conversely, sometimes the early church would try to add things to the gospel. We're going to see some of that too. That's certainly the problem. I mentioned the Galatian church. That's certainly the problem throughout the region of Galatia, where one of the big things was that this element of circumcision had been added, where people, the Judaizers, had come in and said, hey, we've heard you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. You also got circumcised, right? And when the people said, well, no, we didn't do that, they said, ooh, you may not be saved. You know, That had to be corrected. And so sometimes there were elements of this truth that were removed, and sometimes there were other elements outside of this truth that were added. And this is why we have these letters. But here's the thing. I've joked many, many times. I'm glad we don't struggle with this. But the reason I joke that is because I think we all get we still have this danger. We still have this problem. We still have this struggle. And I think part of what Paul does in the opening to this letter is he calls them back to the truth. And he's partly trying to remind them of Epaphras and of his character, but what he really wants to talk about is this truth that they believed. And it's possible, as we're going to see, that some things got maybe added to that truth or some other things maybe got taken away from that truth. And Paul just starts out by saying, let's just look at this truth. 
There is a truth to the gospel. There is a truth to what Scripture teaches about what the gospel is. Some of it is uncomfortable to us. Some of it we might try to take away because we sort of don't like it. I mean, part of what the gospel says is first and foremost that I have a need for salvation because I'm a sinner. Well, I don't like that. Let's soft pedal that a little, maybe, yeah? It's easy to do, isn't it? I don't want to talk about that. Maybe we soft pedal the idea of who Jesus is. We soft pedal this idea of Jesus who clearly and boldly stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. We say, well, that sounds really harsh and mean, though, so maybe we'll soft pedal that. Listen, we are in just as much danger of falling away from this truth as they were. Not because we're a pack of idiots, but because it happens. It's so tempting, which is why I love that what Paul does here is start. Well, he started with verses 1 and (laughs) 2. But he starts here from a place of reminding them of that truth. Do you remember what Epaphras taught you? Let's get back to that. Because as it turns out, that is the thing from which flows this fruit that you're experiencing. And we're so thankful for that. We've heard all about it. But what you're experiencing, this fruit that is manifesting, has everything to do with that truth you very first received. Remember that. Remember your need for salvation. Remember the fact that you have sin in your life, that your relationship with God is broken, but that Jesus and Jesus alone comes in by his grace, by his power, by what he did and accomplished on the cross and in the tomb and then in leaving that tomb, that by that and that alone, you have salvation, that you've been rescued, that you've been given eternal life, that you've been given a right relationship with your God. And when that happens, there's all this fruit. And you've got the fruit. Remember where the fruit comes from. Do you see how brilliantly he draws them to that? And I think it's good for us to be drawn back to that. The first thing we can do in determining whether things need to be fixed is less about going first and saying, okay, here's what I think is wrong and here's what I think is wrong. Let's just come back to what's right, yeah? Let's come back to the truth of the gospel as presented by Scripture. Let's come back to that. Let's be fiercely devoted to that. I suggested last week 
that part of what's good for us is to just determine in our hearts, in my heart, in your heart, as we enter this or any study with Scripture, that we'll just recognize this has authority for me. This is authoritative to me. Well, part of what's authoritative is that in here is truth. It doesn't matter how clever something else sounds. I got to be careful and, and, and be drawn back to the truth of God's word. To be reminded of that. To recognize that, in fact, when I, I express this fruit of the Spirit, when I express some of these characteristics that Paul praises the Colossians for, that it flows out of, not me, that it doesn't flow out of some clever-sounding idea. It flows always out of this truth. Hallelujah. It's a good thing for us to remember. And I love being able to see that Paul wanted to remind the Colossians of this. But again, if I just stop there, if we all just stop there and say, isn't that great? that Paul did this with the Colossians, and we miss the extra step that says, maybe I need to be called back to this truth, this initial truth. Maybe I need to examine whether I have tried to remove anything from it, whether I've tried to add something to it, to be called back to its power its authority, to be reminded of the truth of the gospel as Scripture lays it out. Whether I like it or not, whether it feels good or not, our feelings are immaterial in this matter. <laughs> I think sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that our feelings aren't nearly as important as we think they are if for no other reason that they change all the time, they're fickle. And I want to be careful. You are created in God's image. God gave you feelings. I'm not saying feelings are bad. I'm just saying hanging a lot of our theology on our feelings is really dangerous. We want to hang our theology, as Paul is calling the Colossian church to do, on the truth. Hallelujah. This is truth. This is what we have received. This is what God has given us. This is power. This is life-changing. And from this flows out all of this fruit. And that's good. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. Our Father God, we thank you and we praise you for truth. God, in a world where truth seems so squishy at times, it seems like there's more and more openness to sort of determining our own truth. And it's easy for us to see how other people do that. But God, sometimes we need to see how we do that. And God, thank you for this passage that just calls us back to this central crux of the matter, that there's a truth of the gospel, there's this truth that was preached to us by your holy word. 
and to come back to that. To be reminded that that is the thing out of which our spiritual fruit flows. And to be careful that we're not adding to or taking away from it. So as we continue this study, God, I pray that that would be the case. I pray that you challenge each and every one of us in our own hearts where we might need to be convicted, where we might need to be brought back to this truth. The simple, powerful, gracious, beautiful truth that we were lost. We were sinners. But you and your love chose to make a way for us to be saved, to be brought near to you. It's all through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. And that by simply putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we're rescued, we're found we become saved, we become your children. Help us to cling to that precious truth. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We love you for it, God. Thank you for our day together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.